As you get seated, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I want us to read this text together and then we're going to get into God's word this morning and see what he has for us. Isaiah 40 chapter, chapter 40 verses 9 through 11 are where we will be. They'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, if you do. Isaiah 40, verse 9 through 11. Read along with us this morning. Prophet says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules forth. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with him. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I just thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this time of worship. God, I thank you for this season that we come together to celebrate. Lord, celebrating your goodness. God, celebrating your love for us. Lord, your, your work for, our, for your people. Father, I pray that we would never lose sight. God, of what we have in you. God, in the midst of distractions. Lord, in the midst of difficulties. God, in the midst of uncertainties. Father, I pray that we would know that the only truth forever is in you. Father God, maybe we're here this morning and we're doubting. God, maybe we're here this morning and we're angry. God, maybe we're here this morning and we're hurting. God, maybe we're here this morning and we're built up with pride. Father God, I pray that we lay ourselves at your feet this morning. God, challenge us, reveal to us who you are, what you have for us. Convict us, comfort us, lead, guide, and direct us through this text. Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. So, this morning we begin a new series, kind of take a break from the book of Galatians for the next three weeks. Technically, last week was the beginning of a season that the church historically has celebrated since about 480 A.D. It's a season of Advent. You know, and depending on the church background that you come from, uh, maybe you've heard this word. If you've come from maybe uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic backgrounds, then, uh, you know, those that kind of really follow the liturgical calendar uh, very strenuously, then maybe you've heard the phrasing. If not, most people, if you come from Baptist circles, they don't mention this season a lot. But for us, with, with us, we've decided to kind of take this time every year that's kind of built into the calendar that historically, if it was good enough for the church, then I believe it's good enough for us to kind of take a stand and just kind of kind of look into this time period of, of what this means for us as the church, what this season means. You know, in the Christmas season, there's so much running and gunning and busyness and, and we're spending and we're, we're working and we're doing all these things, trying to play catch up for most of our days, if we're honest. But the reality is what this season represents and what I hope it could be for us, maybe just pressing on the brake, tapping the brake for a moment. And realizing and remembering what Christ 
has done and what the God has promised to do for us. So the season of Advent starts the last Sunday of November and ends on Christmas Eve. And, uh, and, and what this season is all about, you know, what it's built into this calendar, the church calendar to do is to communicate something to us and remind us of something. You know, and I believe it's something that there's a reason why for me, especially for this year, I believe we really need the season of Advent. Is because in the year 2020, we need this more than anything. We need this more than anything. And so the word Advent, it means arrival or an appearing. You know, and so for the church historically and for us even today, there's a sense that we are celebrating that. You know, and, and, and there's two elements of Advent that I really want us to kind of, as we step into these next three weeks, that we have these, these words at the forefront of our mind. And these two elements, it's celebration and anticipation. That as believers, we're celebrating what God has done historically for his people. We're celebrating what God is currently doing with us as people, as believers saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise by God. But then also that second half, we're anticipating. We're anticipating day to day that God will provide. We're anticipating day to day that God will continue to save us, continue to sanctify us, continue to lead God and direct us. But not only that, even more so, we're anticipating the second coming of Christ when he will come and bring us to the place that he has prepared for us. So there is an element of celebration and an element of anticipation that we celebrate this morning and specifically this Christmas season can be summed up and in both of these words and Advent itself, I believe, can be really summed up in one, one word and it's hope. That the season of Advent is a season of hope. You know, and we hear that kind of thrown around a lot, but I pray for us as believers that we would really kind of see what we're talking about when we talk about hope in the Christian life. J.I. Packer said this, he said, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because the Father's will because of the Father's will, Jesus became poor. And he was born in a stable so that, that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. Church, hope for us is a feeling of expectation, a desire for a certain thing, or a feeling of trust is how hope is defined. And so for us as Christians, what is that trust in? What are we hoping in? For us, our hope is tethered to our faith and our salvation in Christ and the presence of his promises in our lives daily. That for us as believers, our hope is tethered to our faith, our faith in Christ for our salvation and our faith in Christ to carry us through every day, every difficulty and mold and make us into the image of God with every step of our life. And so what that does for us is that as I pray that as we kind of navigate the next three weeks. That it would motivate us, that it would move us, that we would know that as Christians we have a hope that is not a fearful stumble. It is not a fearful stumble, but a confident sprint in this life that we can rest in. That, that even in our doubts, even in our fears, even in our failures, that we have this confident hope to hold on to that moves us and presses us through the entirety of our Christian life. And that, that there is no other place at which hope can be found like hope can be found in the Christian faith. Like we've talked about, it, even in this book of the book of Galatians, as we've talked about God's grace and his mercy, that there is no other religion that provides the hope that Christianity provides and the hope of salvation and saving faith through Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone. And so what we have, church, we cannot lose sight of because it is the, the, the very pinnacle of hope that can carry us through. 
You know, Advent is important because it reminds us of hope in the midst of hopeless situations. Now, maybe 2020, there have been moments of hopeless situations or difficult or doubts. And for us, hope that we have is in what's been done and hope in what's to come. And, you know, very, very, you know, I think even last year, maybe even the year before that, when we were in the Advent season, we found ourselves in the book of Isaiah. You know, the book of Isaiah is the longest book of prophecy in the Bible. It's 66 chapters. And there's more messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah than any other book of, of the prophets. And so there's so much here when we're talking about celebration and anticipation. And so that's why every Advent season, just about, we find ourselves coming back to the book of Isaiah. Because the prophet of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah knew. He knew what the people needed and he knew the people. And very similar to us, the people of, of Israel at this time were navigating revival, but they were also navigating rebellion. You know, they were navigating the threat of destruction, but they were also navigating God's mercy and sparing love. I believe that in Isaiah's time, that we can find a lot of similarities between our culture and the culture there. That I believe that if we're honest, then we, there's a lot that we can celebrate about the church and say, man, the church is on the cusp of revival. But then in a lot of ways, we can also look even within the church and see rebellion. We can see pushback. We can see compromise. We can see all these things revealing themselves. And so I, that's why I believe for, for this time that Isaiah could very well be speaking straight into our lives today. And so I believe there's two things that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is trying to communicate to us as he helps us understand this idea that if this series, the title of this series being Good Giver, to understand God and his goodness and his greatness and what he gives and how he gives to his people. And so I think there's two things that we'll start off with this morning that I believe Isaiah is making very clear to us. As we navigate this time and remembering, celebrating and anticipating what God has done for us in our faith. And the first thing that Isaiah encourages, encourages us to do is to know the giver. To know the giver. He says in uh, Isaiah 40 verse 9. At the end of that verse, he says, behold your God. Behold your God. You know, I love a lot of times with the prophets and even in the New Testament with some of the epistles of Paul, they, they, he always kind of starts with bringing our focus in to beholding who Jesus was or beholding who God was. And so when we say the word behold, what are we talking about? It's almost this idea of to study, to take in, to evaluate, to meditate on. You know, this isn't a passing glance, but we are invited to hold, to behold God. Now, this is a long-term mission to know the greatness and the character of God. Fighting through distraction, fighting through uh, deterrence. And this is not something that happens by accident for us. And that's why I believe, you know, uh, he'll say this several more times throughout the text. Behold God or behold the God who does this or behold the God who is this. And we'll see that as we move. But he's calling us to know the giver. Church, because if we don't know the giver, we won't realize the gifts. If we don't know the giver, we won't know the gifts that he's given. We won't see the gifts. We'll miss them because we'll be distracted. 
If we will know the giver, we will realize the gifts. And I believe that's why he begins us in this path where he says, behold your God. Isaiah, more than anyone, would know and understand the greatness of God because of his encounter with the God of Israel, the creator of the universe. You know, he had not only encountered the beauty of the Lord, but he had also seen God in his power and his mind. Isaiah ch chapter 6, verses 4 through 5 and verse 7 Isaiah says this, he says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Like, and there's so much more to this. I pray you'll go back through Isaiah 6 and just see this. But there's just this terrifying scene where the God, the creator of the universe is filling this room. And it says that, that things are shaking, that the room is filling with smoke. And he said, Woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. It says, for my eyes have seen the king. In this moment, Isaiah was beholding the God of the universe. He says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And it says, and he touched my mouth and said, behold. I love this. That, that God, that, that Isaiah says, not only have I beheld and seen and known the king of the universe, but then God speaks to Isaiah and he says, behold, know this. That this is... Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. So God says, not only know who I am, but know what I do. Know what I do for sinful man. Know what I do for my people. He says, behold. And then moving on, when Isaiah says, he says, behold again. And what does he say? Behold the Lord in verse 9. Behold the Lord comes with might. In verse 10. Behold the Lord comes with might. So he begins to lay out who kind of the character and nature of this guy. He said, the Lord God comes with might. You know, this is power when he says this. This might that the Bible speaks of is a power that is sufficient. This is a power that, that, that does not need help. This is a power that overcomes all opposition. So Isaac says, behold a God that is powerful. Behold a God that is omnipotent. Behold a God that overcomes all opposition. Isaiah 25, 9, he says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. David writes in Psalm 66, 3, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Church, our God is not a weak God. Our God is a mighty God. Our God is a powerful God. The giver is mighty. And there is no opposition that stands in his way. There is no enemy that stands up to him. It says in that verse in, in Psalm 66, it says the enemy comes to him cringing. That the enemy doesn't even have the strength to run away in the presence of a mighty God that we serve. That our God is mighty. And we cannot forget that and in the midst of this Advent season and the celebration and anticipation of what God is and what he does, we have to remember that he's mighty, that our God never falls short, that he's never overcome, that he's never surprised, that our God is mighty. And the second thing he says in that same uh, section in verse 10, he says, and his arm rules for him. His arm rules for him. 
It's kind of, as we'll see this kind of play out, it's kind of an internalization to externalization presentation because it's talking about his power and might, and then it moves to his arm. And if we think about that, that is the mode in which things are done. So he's speaking of the tools at which he overcomes the enemy. He's speaking of the way at which kind of the symbolic representation of strength because it is by that that he accomplishes his purposes. It's by that that, that he conquers and slays the enemies in battle. And so it's speaking of kind of the mode at which he accomplishes the extension of his power. Isaiah 32, 1, it says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Psalm 136, 12, it says, With a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, it's not only speaking of kind of the extension of God, kind of the, the way in which he interacts with the world, how he interacts with creation, but also how he interacts with us, this outstretched arm, that even in his power and might, that that arm is extended toward us to participate in life with us. Isaiah 59 Verse 16, he says, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, this, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness of hell. Church, our God is active where we are and he is extending himself towards us. And he, and he uses these tools. It says his arm is, is, is reaching out towards us and his arm rules that our God is not only a mighty, powerful God, but our God is a God that is sovereign, that is ruling, that is controlling, that is, that is piecing and ordaining everything in the world. That there is nothing that God's hand is not over. That there is nothing that God's hand is not outstretched towards. And when it comes to his people, his arm is outstretched toward us in a representation of his steadfast love for us. And not only that, not only is, does he have power and might within him, but then there is an extension of his power that interacts and intercedes for his people. But then the third thing that it says, his reward is with him. His reward is with him. And I love that because the next section is kind of speaking more to his work. I love that it speaks of his reward before his work because what we know and we can believe and accept and, and hopefully grasp onto as Christians is that God's reward is never in question. That the spoils of victory are never in question. That God always has victory. That God always has the reward. That God always has the accomplished task that he sets out to do. That his reward is with him because there is no question about what he brings to the table. And for us, how do we benefit from that? What does God bring? He brings mercy. He brings blessings for his followers. But then he also brings justice and vengeance for his enemies. Victory is never in question with God. His rewards are with him. The spoils of victory are there. And then the last thing in this section, he says that his recompense, 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 I'm getting the, <laughs> recompense is with him. And this word recompense means his work or his wage or his labor. That he's ready to execute what his task is. That he carries his work effectively in the power of his promises. And I 
love another way that this kind of word is used, and I think this is where we can really see where God is working, that this word uh, means to make amends to someone for loss or harm suffered. Isn't that exactly what God is doing on our behalf? Making amends for what has been lost. Making amends for where harm has happened. And making amends for where harm or loss or difficulty has been suffered. That God is at work. And that the work that he does is effective. That it is efficient. And that God is actively involved. And so this is the kind of giver that we serve. He is mighty. He is powerful. Not only is he powerful, but he rules with his arm outstretched towards where we are. And, 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 and he is ordaining and navigating through all situations and all history. And that his reward, that the spoils of his victory are there. Not only that, but the work and the wage that he does on our behalf, he works effectively through the power of his promises. So the first thing that I believe Isaiah is drawing us into is to know our, our giver. To know our giver. To know the giver. To behold, as he says, behold. And then the second thing, last thing this morning, will be done. Is that not only has he called us to know the giver, but he's called us to know the gifts. To know the gifts that he has given to his people. In verse 11, he says this. You know, in the first, in verse 9 and 10, he says, behold who God is. Behold the Lord who comes. Behold his reward. Behold his work. And then in verse 11, he says, he will. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. The word tend means to feed or to rule, to associate with, to protect and to provide. You know, and, and all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, it uses this, this kind of idea, this illustration of a shepherd to reveal to us how God interacts with his people. That God is a shepherd. God is caring for his people. God is involved. God is associating with. God is protecting. God is providing. That this is what God is giving. This is the gift that God has given to his people. That he is tending to his sheep. Charles Spurgeon said this. No creature has less power to take care of itself than the sheep. Even the tiny ant with its foresight can provide for the evil day. But this poor creature, talking about the sheep, must be tended by man or else perish. There is a dependence there that even if we refuse to acknowledge, does not make it less true for us. But I pray that we would not ever see this as, uh, as something kind of keeping us from experiencing life, but understanding that God being our shepherd and us being dependent on him is the way that we experience life to its most abundance. It's how we reveal and live in our, our most free state of life as we've talked about through the book of Galatians. That the law was never meant to be this thing to keep us, but to point to Christ to deliver us. Matthew 18, 12, it says, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains? And go and search for the one that went astray. John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In Zechariah 11, 7, one of my favorite verses on this, he says, So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one named Favor and the other named Union. And I tended the sheep. 
I think this verse, what it really shows us some beautiful elements of the shepherding work of God in our lives. This work that guides us and this work that grows us. He says that he had two staffs, one named Favor. That in the shepherding of God in our lives, that we are walking in, moving in, growing in the favor of God. That this is not some type of obligation that God has to deal with us. You know, if God was obligated to deal with us, then there would be no mercy or grace involved because we don't deserve it. But it says that God favors us. That he, has, that he leads, that he shepherds with a staff of favor for his people, of concern, of love, of compassion for his sheep. That even in the midst of their, their, their weakness, even in the midst of their wandering, that there is favor there. And that is a confidence that we can understand and hopefully hold on to. That's, that God has given that to us in the midst of his power, in the midst of his might, in the midst of his outstretched arm towards us. That with it comes with the staff of favor. And not only that, but he says the other staff is union. You know, the most beautiful thing that we have been given under the shepherding of God is the union of the body of Christ. It's not only our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection, but also our union to each other. Our union to the people of God, to the family of God. You know, way too often we find too many excuses to press away from the church, to press away from other Christians. Because we believe, we've convinced ourselves, especially in, a, in an independent culture that we live in now that believes that we don't need anything or anybody. That how that has bled over into the church that I don't need the church to grow my relationship with God. I don't need other Christians to grow in my relationship with God. But that is absolutely false. And it's such a travesty in our lives if we would ever live by that culture, that mentality. Because that is not a Christian mentality. That is not a Christ mentality. I've always believed that the enemy works in isolation. And Christ works in community. God brings us into a union with each other. And is it broken? Absolutely. Because we're broken. Because we're sinners. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to let each other down. We're going to fall short in expectations. But it does not break that unity. Because we are not unified through each other. We are unified by the Holy Spirit of God that is inside of us. That connects us. And it's through that that we stay unified. It's through that that we continue to pray for each other. It's through that that even within the context of a local church, if we've been hurt or disappointed, that it's through that that we can still pray for them. That we can still reach out to them. That we can still be concerned for their well-being because we are union, unified with them. Even if we don't agree with them, even if we don't like them. We are unified under the shepherding of God. And it's within the shepherding of God that we find faithful Passionate and a tender shepherd. You know, and, and just like a, a shepherd not only protects, but he leads and he provides paths to move and to grow and defend from danger and to guard and to govern us. This is the shepherd that God is for us. That he is giving this to us. This tend, this tending to the shepherd, the sheep that he does for us. And the second thing, not only will he tend to the sheep, but it says in verse 11 that he will gather the lambs in his arms. You know, to gather is an act of pursuit. To gather is to bring in close. That is such, this is not only that there are his arms, a symbol of his might and his power, but also of his compassion and his mercy. That he is gathering, that he is bringing together. And to gather would be a sense of, of a closeness. Uh, to, to bring in close to where he is. You know, and uh, th this idea 
of gathering the lambs. You know, the lambs were the smallest and the weakest and the most vulnerable of the flock. It says that, that God, the shepherd, is bringing those in. You know, he's not looking for the strongest, that he's not pursuing or gathering the strongest. It says that he's pursuing those who are in need. He's pursuing those, and that's all of us, that we're all the weakest, that we're all the most vulnerable, that we're all the smallest, whether we acknowledge it or not. But even beyond that, understanding God's mercy and his love towards how even Jesus would say the least of these. Collecting what has been scattered. You know, and even thinking of this idea of lambs, you know, the, the, the lambs are the object of the enemy's attacks because it's because of its weakness. You know, and I believe that we go through ebbs and flows of our lives where we find ourselves feeling that vulnerable, feeling that weak, or maybe we don't even feel that weak, but maybe we're enthralled in some type of sin that has put us in that place where we're that weak. And it says that even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our wondering when we're the most vulnerable, it says that God is gathering, God is pursuing to bring us back into himself. And then the last one in this part portion of the last two, in verse 11, he says that he will carry them in his bosom. You know, and it communicates this idea of closeness and care. You know, a nearness, a community, a relationship with him. Job eleven eighteen, he says, and you feel you will feel secure because there is a hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You know, and I love this idea that not only is God pursuing to gather into his arms, to, to go after those who are wondering, to go after those who are hurting, to go after those in need, to go after those that recognize that in my own strength I can't accomplish or to do. But it says not only is he gathering and pulling together the scattered, but it also says that he is carrying. How much strength does it take to be carried? Zero. And so God is telling us that in the midst of our scattering, in the midst of our wandering, that when he has gathered us together, the weak, the lambs, the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most needy, it says he's not just saying, come on and get it together and figure it out. But it says he is literally carrying us that he, by his own strength, by his own power, by his own might, those ever mighty ruling arms that God has, it says that they are carrying us. How we can look through the Gospels and we can see continuations and in, in, in places where the story is kind of filled in. And that verse in Matthew 18, 12 that we had read earlier, when he had says, you know, he'll go after the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one who went astray. And he'll leave the 99 and go after the one. Then in Luke 15, it, it adds a little tidbit more to that portion of the story. In Luke 15, Luke writes, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Rejoice. Man, how amazing is that? That we're talking about a sheep that has wandered off, following some scent, following some kind of meal, following some type of potential satisfaction, wandering away from the security of the shepherd, wandering away from the security of the collective, of the community. And not only does it say that the shepherd goes after that one, but it says when he has found that one, what does he do? He lays it on his shoulders and he does not scald it. 
says he did. It did not say that he beat it. It did not say that he abused it. It did not say that he punished it. It did not say that he killed it. What does it say that he did? It said he laid it on his shoulders and rejoiced. When God has pursued us and found us, God rejoices. Heaven rejoices when God has collected and gathered those who have won. And I love that not only does God carry in his own strength, will God carry us. You know, I can, I, I, even now, I can think of times in my life, past, present, and hopefully future, when God has had to carry me. But not only does God carry us, but I'm so thankful for in my own life in this next portion. In verse 11, is that, and he gently leads those that are with him. That he won't just carry us in our weakness, but God will also lead us. That he will allow us in our own strength to move as we should that as God has done the, the majority of the work as God has carried us beyond those moments of difficulty of weakness of the through the attacks of the enemy that there are times I believe in our sanctification in our life the majority of our life where we are being led where he lets us in our own strength where he sets us down and he says okay now come He's not saying, all right, peace, I'm out, you got this, you figure this out. No, but he says that it's in your own strength, but you're not on your own. I haven't left you behind, I'm right here with you. That I'm walking alongside you, that I'm walking the paths with you. And so what is the main requirement of being led, church? It's to follow. And so the question for us is, are we following? You know, through his tending, through his gathering of us, and even through his carrying, are we following? You know, I think we love the idea of God protecting us and tending to us and feeding, uh, feeding us spiritually and, and physically. Do we love the idea of God pursuing us? You know, we love the idea of God carrying us. You know, and even as a church, sometimes we fail to move beyond those last three and really challenge each other as the church to follow his leadership, to take steps of faith and following God's lead in your life, following him and, and, and allowing yourself to actively participate in the journey, to actively participate through your gifts, through your abilities, through your callings, through the things you're confident in, that we would be, be, be led, that we would follow. Listen, we can't be gently led if we're not actively following. And so for us, I pray that we would be participating, using our abilities and our strengths because that's what God has done. He's carried us to a point and then he sets us down and he says, okay, I'm here with you, but it's your turn to walk. It's your turn to move. It's your turn to begin to take steps of faith. You know, and I'll, I feel like I always kind of come back to my, my kids when I think about things like this. But, you know, for me, that you know, to have able-bodied kids who are able to do, you know, what justice do I do to them if I were to continue to do things for them, right? I mean, if, if my 13-year-old was still getting fed and bathed and dressed by me, that would be weird for all of us, right? No, he loves that. You know, but in 
Bach. And I believe that's how God looks at us as Abel Bach. And that God can absolutely take every choice away from us. God can make every decision for us. He can make everything crystal clear for every decision, for every activity. How do I serve in the church? Who do I pick for my spouse? What do I say to my spouse? What job do I work? What do I do in this? What do I do in that? Man, God could lay all the, he could send you an email tomorrow and say, hey, listen, Garen, you should do this, 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 this. And not this, 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 or this. And then life would be so easy. But where's the steps of faith in that for us? He's carried us to the moment where we can have confidence. Now we can actively follow his gentle leadership and know that even in the midst of our tripping and our stumbling, that he's going to be there, that he's going to walk with us, that he's going to continue to, to be and be and lead and show us the way. But would we begin to follow? Would we begin to take steps? And listen, it's not always going to be crystal clear. It's not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to make sense. But I love that in his leadership, what word does he use to describe it? Gently. Listen, God has never one time expected us to be perfect or to have it all figured out. Because if we did, we wouldn't need it. But we have a God that gently leads. We have a God that will show us the way. We have a God that will reveal these things to us. That he will walk with us. And that we serve a God church. That whether another church has, has communicated to you differently. Church, we have a God that is committed to the process. We have a God that is committed to the process. And you know what that God expects us to do in the midst of that process? To fail. But God is committed to the process. Because he has promised the outcome. And so, for us, I pray, you know, as we enter into this Advent season, that we would see that there is a mindset that transcends the hardships of this world and of our circumstances. And that's a mindset of hope. That's, that's what Isaiah calls us to behold. That's what Isaiah calls us to see in the giver and the giving of a great God that we serve. Is that because he's a good giver and because he gives the best gifts that we have hope. That it doesn't matter the situation that we're in that there's hope to carry us through. That we have hope in a good giver. A mighty savior, a compassionate and attentive shepherd. That the hope we have in God as a giver and the gift of his promises are the only thing that can bring us through the life we experience here in our pilgrimage on earth. And so how do we see those things? How do we see God as that good giver? How do we see the gifts that he has for us? And I believe that Isaiah starts out the chapter, the, this section in verse 9 with a mindset for us to understand. He says, go on up to a high mountain. You know, in the Bible, every time they would go to a high mountain, there were two things that were happening. They were either going to encounter God, to hear from God, to experience His promises, to experience His might and His power and His mercy and His grace, or they were going to this high place to make a proclamation for others to hear. Colossians 3, 2, it says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. We want to truly experience hope and be able to walk in the hope that we have in Christ. Church, let's stop getting tied up in the empty, weak, foul, fallible things of this world. Hope hangs out high. It does not dwell down low in the mess that we allow to consume us. 
We should not ever be surprised when world systems fail us. We should never be surprised when things around us, leaders, governments, all these things fail us because they will. But we can't allow anything below the might and the power and the compassion and the provision of God be our shepherd. We can't allow anything below to be our leader, anything below to be our guide in this life. Because in the promises and the hope of God as the giver and the gifts that he gives, he will not disappoint. He will not lead us astray. He will not leave us behind. He will not get fed up with us. He will not let go of us and he will not move on. He will not seek an upgrade and he will not replace us. Because his promises stand forever and his promises of hope for us stand forever. Before this in verses 6 through 8 in Isaiah 40. He says, all flesh is grass, and its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass will wither, and the flower fades when the breath of, God, of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Then he ends a section like this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Church, this word is the same word to describe who Jesus is, that he was the word made flesh. So what Christ has done, what Christ has guaranteed for us in himself will stand forever. That there's no time, there's no storm, there's no difficulty, there's no failure, there's no situation that can take that away or change that promise. So I pray that as we celebrate and anticipate who Jesus is for us today, that we can live in hope. That we can share hope. That we can go onto that mountain to not only encounter God, but to proclaim to those around us how good of a giver and how good the gifts are of our God. Because church, our God is a good giver. Our God is a good giver. And the greatest gift he's given us to live in every single day is hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.